2: Welcome to the Peter King podcast, an interesting week six to cover in the National Football League, a controversial week six. We're going to get into a lot of the details of the officiating. Is it too much to call it an officiating crisis? I don't think so. But we're going to talk to Ed Werder of ESPN, the once and former ESPN uh, reporter who was in Green Bay. Uh, for the quite controversial Green Bay-Detroit ball game on Monday night. Uh, And we're going to talk about officiating, and we're going to talk about the state of the Dallas Cowboys. He's a regular beat guy uh, on the Cowboys as well. And also, I'm going to play you a conversation that I had uh, recently with Doc Emmerich. The NHL season is getting uh, off to a strong start so far this year. And I I had a chance to speak to Doc Emmerich when we both got inducted into the National Sports Media Hall of Fame back in June. You'll hear that conversation, including his great memory of an NFL play-by-play moment that absolutely shocked me. And I think you'll get a kick out of it, too. But first, I want to just go over two things about officiating Uh, before we start with Ed Werder that are particularly bothersome to me. Okay. And the first thing is that when the NFL met in March and redid the rules and basically allowed coaches to appeal and challenge pass interference calls, both plays that they believed were pass interference and were not called on the field and pass interference calls that they believed were false when the NFL did that there was nothing written in the rule that said uh that we're only going to call these in playoff games or in mega games it said that if there was a clear and obvious foul or a clear and obvious reason to change a call on the field then the call should be changed but what the NFL has done with Senior Vice President of Officiating Al Riveron, especially in the last month of the season, ESPN has a great stat on this in that there have been 25 challenge flags thrown by head coaches since week three on the pass interference rule. And of those 25 calls, 24 were confirmed. Now, we can talk, uh, and, and and it's it would be very easy to, to go over five or six of these and say, well, wait a second, that looks that one looks pretty clear and obvious. This one did, and I believe that what the NFL has done is they're basically trying uh, because this past weekend there were only two calls that were you know in Sunday's games. Uh, this weekend there were only two calls where challenge flags were thrown. So coaches have got the understanding now, just don't challenge them because Al Riveron is just going to uh, stay with the call that was on the field. Al Riveron was not asked in March to stay with the call on the field. He was asked to adjudicate calls and the calls that were wrong on the field to fix. And there have been a slew of calls that were wrong on the field And there is absolutely no question in my mind that what the NFL is doing right now is they are telling coaches, we do not want you to challenge. Don't challenge these calls unless there's an absolute mugging. There was an absolute mugging on Thursday night in the Patriots-Giants game uh, when the Patriots cornerback Jonathan Jones just absolutely mugged Golden Tate before the ball got to him. Uh, But, you know, look, it was a two-score game. It was late in the fourth quarter, and Riveron just said, okay, nothing to see here. Let's move along. That is not Al Riveron's job, period. That is the—his job is to simply call—fix the calls that were wrong on the field. That was an uncalled pass interference play without any question. A hundred people could watch that, and a hundred people would say that's pass interference. It should have been changed. Al Riveron is not God. He has to change calls that should be changed. And if I'm Roger Goodell, as I wrote in my Football Morning in America column this week, there has got to be an upholding of the rules that the owners voted on. 31 owners voted, we want to see appeals and challenges of interference calls. We want to see those. And so it's not Al Riveron's job to say, we're not going to change any of them. It's Al Riveron's job to follow the rules. And he's not doing that right now. Secondly, I believe, as Mike Florio, my colleague at NBC, has said on many occasions, that the Sky Judge concept is a good idea. I didn't love it at the time when it was being discussed, but 32 out of 32 NFL coaches back in March said, we want a Sky Judge. And in my opinion, a Sky Judge would have erased both of the flags that were so huge in the Monday night game. The -the hands-to-the-face calls uh, against uh, the Detroit Lions down the stretch in that game on Trey Flowers. Two flags that I'm not saying that won the game for Green Bay, but were huge in Green Bay's 23-21 victory. In my opinion, the Sky Judge needs to become a part of the NFL officiating crew, beginning in 2020. So let's go to Ed Werder now. He's in Green Bay. We can talk about that. We can talk about the Dallas Cowboys. We'll have a good conversation with Ed Werder. And then after that, you're going to hear some fun with Doc Emmerich, the legendary NBC hockey announcer. Really happy to be joined by Ed Werder of ESPN. Ed um, was at the Green Bay Detroit game On Monday night, we're finding him in his hotel in Green Bay before he leaves to go home to Dallas to go cover the circus that is the Jerry Jones Dallas Cowboys. Um, But plenty of news from the Monday night game, so we're going to talk about that first, and then we will talk a little Cowboys. Ed, how are you?
3: Peter, I am outstanding. How are you?
2: Doing well. You got a little more than you bargained for last night. You got not only... (laughs) A really fun football game, but you got the nationwide cries for uh, uh, to finally do something about the officiating crisis in the NFL. And I don't want to be too dramatic, but it sort of feels coming out of that game last night that there is a crisis. How did it feel on the ground there in Green Bay?
3: Well, you know, I think it, it, obviously Lions fans were outraged and understandably so. Um, I think if you look at the situation overall, you know, the officials who are, despite public belief, to the contrary, they're objective and competent professionals and they want to do the job well, but they're enormously frustrated. The fans are understandably uh, outraged. The coaches that I've talked to are just beyond uh, exasperated. Now, I've had coaches tell me that it's become so unpredictable and arbitrary that they have no idea what to expect in terms of, how the rules will be enforced each week, and that that's the biggest unknown in terms of deciding the outcome of games, and it's often, too often, the most significant component in determining the outcome of a game. And you know, I, I just think that the fact that they voted unanimously in the aftermath of the non-call of the NFC Championship game to make pass interference something the coaches can challenge, and that Al Riveron has declined in nearly every instance to overturn a call. Uh, that the coaches have challenged to the point that the coaches now don't even bother to challenge such plays is blatantly wrong and it undermines the integrity of an important element in the game. I mean, Matt Patricia should have been able to challenge that defensive pass interference that wasn't called last night in a game decided by one point. And Jason Garrett should have been able to throw his red flag on the offensive pass interference that cost the Cowboys a fourth-quarter touchdown in a two-point game, and yet they know they're wasting a timeout in a challenge because the play won't be fairly reviewed and corrected if wrong.
2: Yeah, that's my biggest problem, Ed, since week three, as your Kevin Seifert, uh, Seifert rather, has reported at ESPN, uh, there have been 25 challenge <laughs> flags thrown on the pass interference play, and only one of the calls has been overturned. And it is to the point right now that, I believe anyway, that if the Tommy Lee Lewis, Nikhil Roby Coleman play happened in a game this Sunday, somewhere in the NFL, if a play exactly like that happened, and particularly if it was a lost cause game late in the fourth quarter of a game that really wasn't that meaningful. Like, for instance, the Golden Tate non-overturn in the Thursday night game of the Giants-Patriots game, when Golden Tate was uh, absolutely undressed, on the field by Jonathan Jones of the Patriots before the ball came. And then not only wasn't that called on the field, but then after Pat Shermer threw his challenge flag, Al Riveron chose to let the play on the field stand. And I am dead serious when I say that, in my opinion, right now, if the Nickel Roby Coleman, uh, Tommy Lee Lewis play happened again, I'm not sure, and I feel pretty sure that in this climate right now, it would not be overturned.
3: Well, I I think what that non-call and Al Riveron's decision not to change the call that you're talking about in the Thursday night game, because it was so inconsequential to the outcome of the game, I think that was kind of the dividing line where the coaches recognized nothing's nothing's going to be changed on calls like that unless it's in a playoff game And it's obviously going to determine the outcome. I mean, I think the coaches believe this was all, you know, it's a CYA move uh, by the league to to make the public believe that they've done something of consequence after that poor non-call that many would argue sent the wrong team to the Super Bowl last year, that they've done something about it. They're not just ignoring it. But the fact of, uh, of it is they're not enforcing it and they're not looking at it objectively and correcting the mistake regardless of when it's called in a game. Like if the coach thinks that play should be, you know, he has a right to challenge. If he thinks that play is something that is important enough to him that he wants it reviewed and changed if necessary, then that's what should happen. It, it, the rest of it shouldn't count. Like the circumstances don't matter. The coach has a challenge. He's using it. So judge it fairly. I think everybody deserves that, you know. And then the two calls on uh, Trey Flowers last night for you know illegal hands to the face that obviously extended two Packer scoring drives and were enforced against a player who has never been called for that in 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 his history in the league. You know that creates a lot of questions about objectivity that really the officials shouldn't be answering. Uh, but I think if you ask them after the game and they saw the replay they would not have made those calls. I think the fact that uh, Bakhtiari's head went back created uh, the illusion of a penalty on flowers that didn't truly exist. That while technically, uh, as you saw in, 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 in Cleet uh, Blakeman's report post game from the pool reporter, it's head and neck area are excluded. and So they could say, well, it, what, the contact occurred around the neck and so it's justified. The fact is, they don't call that. They only call it if it's in the face. And they called it. I've under never heard. I've never heard.
2: I've never heard of an illegal hands to the neck. Never. Right. Never just, heard illegal but, but hands. Is the illegal hands in the rule, to the but head don't neck area. area. Yeah. 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 But so, they don't call it that
3: way. And it's all but about. But anyway, it, you know, it's all about how it's enforced.
2: And the other, other thing, Peter,
3: that, that adds to all this. Is, fouls. Is, yeah. According to uh, a website called NFLPenalties.com, Green Bay leads the NFL. Uh, in terms of yards gained from an opponent penalty, 501 yards for penalties. And Detroit is dead last with 234 yards. And so you can imagine how that looks within the context of what we saw at the end of the game last night.
2: Right. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, with Ed Werder of ESPN, who covered the Detroit Green Bay game uh, on Monday night. So, Ed, what was it? Was there any chatter about this post game in either the locker rooms or from the coaches?
3: Uh, But, you know, both of the coaches downplayed it. Aaron Rodgers said something to the effect of, you know, he's a believer that calls even out right and wrong over the course of the season. Um, You know, Trey Flowers did not openly complain about it, uh, but there were a couple of lions, uh, mainly defensive backs who did uh, argue somewhat vociferously about the fact that it was an unjust outcome, that the penalties were wrong and unfair and detrimental to the lions. But, just like in the NFC championship game, as egregious as the call uh, was and uh, as big an effect as it obviously had on the outcome, the Lions, like the Saints to the NFC championship game, still had plenty of opportunities to otherwise win the game. And so, you know, I mean, these, 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 the players, the coaches all know that you look bad when you complain about the officiating uh, and you subject yourself to being financially disciplined by the league. And so they generally avoid it. But, yes, there there was some open criticism in the, in the Lions locker room about it after the game.
2: And, you know, I'm wondering now, um, I spoke with Mike Florio on his show on Tuesday morning, and I never was a huge fan of the Sky Judge concept uh, because, uh, honestly, Al Riveron in New York is the Sky Judge, you know, in many cases. <laughs> Um, but, but I, 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 think I'm going to change my mind on this, uh, because in my opinion, if you have a dedicated official in the stadium, theoretically upstairs, where the instant replay official would be, if you have that extra set of insurance eyes on that play, I do believe that both of the Trey Flowers penalties would have been overturned. Uh, and and also a couple of the other phantom calls in the first half. There was a holding call that simply did not exist in the first half. And and in my opinion, I think that that is the type of insurance policy that. The more I've thought about it, I wouldn't even hate it if I were an official on the field because this uh, official, this sky judge, could be uh, a member of the crew could travel with the crew, he would be he'd be on their team and the and and the right. and the story right. would be that guy would be protecting them from making a huge right. mistake. Right now we would not be talking about, you know, Cleet Blakeman's crew as vociferously as we are if there was an insurance policy preventing them from making the horrible calls that the umpire made on the two hands to the face calls. And so I, you know i don't know how you see it but that was the thing that, that the coaches voted 32 to nothing in favor of at the league meetings this year and the uh, you know league basically said we're not going to do that and look in fairness to the league it's it, i'm not saying it's impossible it would have been really hard to wake up on april 1st essentially and say well we got to find 17 new officials right now to be sky judges on these crews because there are 17 crews, uh, give the NFL a little time to organize this, which I think they could do right now. And, and they'd be in better position to do it. But what do you sense a, your opinion and, and thinking back to the league meetings, how strident were coaches on it? Uh, and, and does, do you think this has any legs or any chance?
3: Well, I think the system as it is and the new rule were introduced on a one-year experimental basis, and I think it's been an abject failure. So I think what they're doing now will go away next year. And I think people like Cleet Blakeman would be better served uh, by the process that you just described, which is let's eliminate the Al Riveron god of officials at every game uh, in New York, over, overviewing every single game being played on the, every Sunday, Monday, and Thursday, and let's create a position where this guy, as you said, the this, sky this judge is part of that crew and is looking not only to get the call right for the benefit of all involved, including the crew on the field, um, but also, you know, I think one of the things that's created um, a sense of uncertainty and uh, undermines the officials on the field is just some of the verbiage that's now associated when Al Riveron makes a ruling, and that is they generally come back with the league has determined the, the, the call on the field stands. They don't say the call on the field is confirmed. They say the call stands, which creates some question about just how did Al Riveron see it. If he's not saying the call is correct and confirmed, he's saying it stands. Like, there isn't enough evidence to change the call that was made on the field, but I'm not 100% sure what they called on the field is correct either. Uh, There's just so much ambiguity in all of it that I do think the best solution is the one that you just outlined. Uh, Having a sky judge assigned to every crew, he's part of that group, he travels with them, he's graded, you know, as they are uh, as a team. I just don't think the public understands how hard this job really is and how really devoted and how seriously these guys take it And the standard to which they're held, I mean, it's not what the public thinks it is, honestly. At least in my interactions with with these crews, you know, as I see them at games and talk to them in the offseason and have a a sense of, you know, what their week involves. They don't just show up at the game, and then when the game's over, they're done. It's far from that.
2: Right, yeah. When I did A Week in the Life of an Officiating Crew in 2013, Mm -hmm. uh, I saw the the how painstaking the preparation is so anybody who ever says anything to denigrate the officials on the field i find i mean they might make a mistake but it they're right. not making a mistake because because they're not working at it or 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 whatever um you know, that, or because that they're not objective
3: and they're not fair-minded and all yeah, the things that exactly. you
2: know, fans yeah. seem to think that every ruling goes against their yeah. team. And
3: I think the other thing, Peter, that gets overlooked in, in the officiating crisis that there is right now is that in the last two years, they've lost seven of the 17 referees. You know, I mean, Ho- right. Ed Hockley, Terry McCauley, Gene Steratore, Jeff Triplett, Walt Coleman, Pete Morelli, John Perry. I mean, they've all resigned and left for
2: other pursuits, and you know that. And you know they're not referees. losing. It. With all due respect to Jeff Triplett, who I, I thought was was not as bad as his reputation was, but with all due respect to Jeff Triplett, they're not just losing the the run of the mill referees. Now, just so that people will understand, there are seventeen NFL referees, okay, and so half of them have been lost in the last two years. Half. Seven out of seventeen, you know, almost half rather. Right. Seven out of seventeen, and and when you when you say we lost, you know, when the NFL says, well, we lost them and we we replaced them. I mean, here's the bottom line with this: they have lost these officials because television is more lucrative and, quite honestly, less pressure packed, and it's not as hard a job as it is to uh, officiate an NFL game, and to work at it during the week as much as these guys have to work at it. Um, and so, I mean, to me, the solution is, uh, you know, to improve the money that they pay officials. Right. And and look, Terry McCauley did not leave. Gene <laughs> Steratore did not leave because they were going to quit officiating. They left because... They had great opportunities to go join NBC and CBS, respectively, as did John Perry. The exact same thing with ESPN. They got paid handsomely to leap more to do less work, quite honestly, um, to go and work for television. And again, I don't know how much they got paid, but we we do know that we do
3: know the NFL has the financial resources to prevent that from happening. Yes. It's one of the most profitable businesses in America if they wanted to pay these guys competitively, they would not lose them in all likelihood. And, and beyond the guys right. we talked about, which, oh, by the way, were the referees in 10 of the last 16 Super Bowls, so they're that good, that qualified, that much better than the rest of the group. Um, but they've also lost Dean Blandino. They lost Mike Pereira, again, to television. Uh, and, and I think you could easily argue they're both better than the people who have replaced them.
2: Yeah, I would agree. And uh, in our remaining time, let's go and talk a little bit about the Dallas Cowboys. Um, You know, as they sit here three and three, ready to uh, play host to the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday in week seven, uh, that in essence is going to be one of the most important games in the NFC East this year. Both teams are three and three. Both teams have underachieved. I I think what really is is uh, you know a, a huge problem for Dallas right now is is health and earlier than you would normally think it should be I have no idea you have no idea if either one of the tackles is going to play for Dallas if Dak Prescott once again as as happened Sunday in the Meadowlands will be running for his life and it looks like Amari Cooper may miss another game and more after that so how do you look at the Cowboys right now, and how do you look at their chances to right the ship?
3: Well, first of all, like you said, they've lost three straight games, and the most recent came against a previously winless opponent in a game in which Dallas committed no turnover. So they were beaten straight up uh, with the personnel that they had. And I think the argument can be made that this was the worst regular season defeat Jason Garrett's nine seasons as the head coach because... The loss to the 0-4 Jets was the first time that Dallas had lost to an opponent that entered a game 0-4 or worse in 20 years, and Jason Garrett is coaching in the final year of his contract. Now, I understand that it becomes difficult uh, to put together a consistent offense that can score like the Cowboys did the first three weeks of the season when you don't have Leo Collins at right tackle, you don't have Tyron Smith at left tackle, you lose Amari Cooper three plays into the game, which he really put the Cowboys in a bad position, obviously telling them that he could play through the quad injury and then playing three snaps in a game where they didn't activate Devin Smith. So they were immediately without their tackles and without and short at wide receiver. Now that being said, this is a game of attrition. This is a game of building you know, a deep roster. And there are plenty of other teams. I mean, I think Sean Payton and Ron Rivera have been winning for a month without their starting quarterbacks. I think the San Francisco 49ers – uh, won last week with the best run team in football. They won without both their tackles and their fullback against the Rams, a defending NFC champion. Uh, I think the Patriots have won all year and are undefeated without their starting center and their left tackle. So uh, I just don't think uh, you know that Jason Garrett's performance or that of the Cowboys can be excused just because they've suffered some injuries. That's what happens in the NFL. That's what's happened to them. It was inevitable. Now that being said. Remember, you were at training camp when I was there. Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones and Will McClay believe this is the deepest, most talented roster that the Cowboys have had since they won Super Bowls in the 1990s, three out of four years. So that's, now's the time where that depth and that character and having the right guys is supposed to affect the outcome of games and allow your team to continue winning. And the fact that it hasn't is, is not an excuse to me. And it, to me, it's not one at the end of the season when Jerry Jones – assesses the performance of Jason Garrett uh, will play a role in determining whether he continues as the head coach of the team.
2: All very fair, all very interesting. Um, where are the Cowboys now? First of all, I'll ask you these three questions in order. Number one, is there any way they make a coaching change during the season?
3: Jerry Jones has been present uh, when each Cowboys coach in the history of the franchise has been relieved of his responsibilities in one way or another, every single one from um, Tom Landry to Jimmy Johnson, to Bill Parcells, to Chan Gailey, Dave Campbell, and everybody in between, Wade Phillips. Only one coach has ever been fired during the season, and that was Wade Phillips. And it was something Jerry Jones didn't want to do. He has a real aversion to it. But the fact is he saw the team quit on the coach in a very obvious way, turning down tackles and allowing touchdowns on defense in a nationally televised game in which they lost by 35 points. He fired Wade Phillips reluctantly the next day. Another factor in that was he already had the next coach uh, on that staff, Jason Garrett. He wanted Jason Garrett to be the next day coach, and he was going to be at one one point or another. Uh, Those are not the circumstances that exist to me right now with the Cowboys. So as long as the players don't quit on Jason Garrett, and we've never seen any evidence that they have even for a single game over the past nine years. Now some people are going to make a lot of the fact that you know, he's a very reassuring, positive, encouraging guy, and in the final four minutes of the game the other day when they were down eight after a missed field goal, he was clapping his hands on the sideline as he's known to do and holding out his hands to players who came off the field and ignored uh, exchanging handshakes or hand slaps with him. And, And maybe that's the beginning of it. I don't know. But right now, I would tell you, I don't think there's any way Jason Garrett gets fired during the season.
2: Do you believe there is any way that uh, Jerry Jones, if they do make a change, could convince either Lincoln Riley or Sean Payton to be the next coach of the Dallas Cowboys?
3: Well, Sean Payton just signed an extension with uh, the New Orleans Saints, and unless he has some kind of escape clause or – the Cowboys could accommodate the Saints uh, by trading for him, which we've seen done for other coaches. I guess it first happened with John Gruden, Steve Mariucci, uh, Bill Belichick. Uh, I guess you can't completely rule it out, but I see that as a, an extreme long shot. And I know that you know the, the, that Sean Payton has always had an interest in coaching in Dallas. He's, always, he's had a great relationship with Jerry. Uh, Jerry, I think, regards Sean Payton as – the greatest asset who ever left uh, the Cowboys during his ownership years um, in a way that hurt the franchise. But the timing just never worked out. Um, I think Sean believes there were times he could have had the head coaching job under different circumstances in Dallas. Uh, so I don't really see that as a possibility. The question to me with Lincoln Riley, and he's very he has a good friendship with Stephen Jones, um, is – You know how how interested is he in coaching in the NFL, and he obviously his philosophy would seem a very good fit for the offensive personnel the Cowboys have. Like I think Dak Prescott's a perfect fit for what Lincoln Riley likes to try to do offensively, and he's what trying to create his third consecutive Heisman Trophy-winning quarterback. Um, The question to me with Jerry is: Is he willing to pay a coach? Jerry's Jerry's never or seldom believes you have to pay a coach you know, top-of-the-market money if you're the Dallas Cowboys. The opportunity and the allure is such that you don't – that's not necessary. And so he's almost never done that. I would say the one exception was Parcells, and those were unique circumstances where he was building a stadium. You know, the team was essentially a cesspool that needed – he needed Parcells' credibility, uh, and so he paid for that. But generally that's not Ben Jerry's philosophy. But I think Lincoln Riley would be a great candidate for the job.
2: I, I do too. I think he'd be interesting. But I I question – after talking to him a little bit, getting to know a little bit about the whole Kyler Murray story, we had a long conversation in the spring. I don't know. To me, I I just and who knows, uh, you, you you never know. But I just got a sense he'll be at Oklahoma for a while, but we'll see. Um, well, let me
3: just say this: if the Cowboys I, I, I hire want, Lincoln Riley, yeah. Peter, if the Cowboys yeah. do hire Lincoln Riley, it won't be the most shocking coaching hire they've made with an Oklahoma coach. <laughs>
2: I like that a a lot. What is Barry Switzer doing <laughs> okay. right now?
3: Uh, Barry's enjoying life like he always does. Uh, you know, he's a godlike figure up there in Oklahoma, and uh, he enjoys it. He still has a relationship with Jerry. Uh, he's played a role in, you know, some of the, the players that the Cowboys have drafted or signed out of Oklahoma, most recently DeMarco Murray. Uh, yeah, Barry just has a good time. He loves life, and and God bless him.
2: I think he was doing a similar thing when he was coaching the Dallas Cowboys uh also, but again, that's a, it's a matter for another podcast. Um, and I wanted to end with just asking you, um, you obviously were a name in the news. You had a lot of, uh, you had a lot of people who fell in love with you when, when you were part of the, the, the carnage at ESPN three years ago, uh, when you were, when you were laid off there and then you ended up going back this year. And this is sort of an odd question, but I thought of it when I uh, knew we were going to be doing this. But what would you say you learned over the time that you were on the sidelines before you got rehired by ESPN? What are the what are the life lessons or what are the professional lessons you think you learned most?
3: Well, first of all, I, I, I recognize how fortunate I am in that, you know, there were 100 people let go, and most, if not all of them, are equally deserving of the opportunity to return, uh, as I've been fortunate enough to, to have. And, and that hasn't happened for many of the others. Um, but, and, and I've always appreciated, you know, and valued what we do that we get to go cover this incredible sport and attend these fantastic, dramatic games and, you know, interact with. Um, with players and coaches and owners. And, and I love doing it in general. Um, and I really value the platform that ESPN provides for that, uh, to do it at the highest level. And I'm a very competitive person, so I really miss that part of it. But I just think that, you know, it's so important to stay relevant. And, and, and it was a challenge to do that, even with social media opportunities, even though you know, I was I was blessed to you know work for Westwood One, um, and I had my own podcast and those sorts of things. Uh, but I, I just think you have to you know make sure to create relationships that are uh, that are with people who value you, uh, people who you can trust, people who will be advocates for you. Um, and I think having you know professional integrity is important, and, and just persevering and knowing what you want and. Uh, Being persistent and and driven in trying to achieve that, Um, and and a lot you know during the two years there was a lot of frustration. Obviously, Um, I wasn't ready to retire, Um, and uh, but at the same time it allowed me you know us opportunities to spend two years with our grandson in Colorado that we wouldn't have had, and it allowed me the opportunity to be there when I really needed to be for my wife Jill as she was you know battling cancer. So. Uh, I just think you need to be grateful for, for all the things you have and to know what you want and be very focused and determined in trying to get it and you know never, never burn bridges when it's not necessary.
2: Wise words, Ed. Thanks so much, and thanks for uh, the education on what happened in Green Bay and what's going on in Dallas. Really appreciate it.
3: Always great to talk to you, Peter.
2: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So,
3: no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: Our thanks to Ed Werder, and we're going to turn it over to hockey for the rest of the show. So if you don't like hockey, get out and get out now. Now it's going to be fun. You're really going to want to hear Doc Emmerich. We had a lot of fun in our conversation. But first, just a couple of words about a new hockey podcast in the NBC sports family. It's called Our Line Starts. And if you've seen Slapshot, you know exactly what Our Line Starts means. But it's cool. It's a storyteller's podcast with the NBC hockey authorities. Keith Jones, Mike Milberry, Jeremy Roenick. And if you want to hear about some brawls, if you want to hear about some great games, if you want to hear about what in the world is going to happen with my New Jersey Devils, and will they ever win a hockey game in 2019 and 20? Please, listen to Our Line Starts. And now, without further ado, the greatest hockey announcer of my lifetime, my conversation with Doc Emmerich. So happy to be joined on the podcast Uh, by the great Doc Emrick, and Doc, we're sitting here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Here it is in late June. And uh, we both are about to have quite an honor bestowed on us to be inducted in the National Sports Media Hall of Fame. And when I saw who I was going in with, you, Bob Lee, Tony Kornheiser, I was just, I was thrilled, not only because of the diversity of the group, but because, quite honestly, I really, really admire your work greatly, so it's a thrill to be going in with you.
4: Thank you. Uh, That's wonderful of you to say. My first thought was when I considered the contributions the three of you have made to the betterment of America, did they want to do a recount on my edition? Because (laughs) all I've been is just hanging around hockey rinks documenting what athletes do rather than trying to cure the ills of, of sports society which is what the three of you have done by being far more critical about it than I have. Uh, I've just uh, reacted with my eyes and, and uh, my brain uh, sometimes and and reacted with words to what I've seen. Uh, but the critical accounts that the three of you have made have, have made sports and society far better. But it's an honor for me to be in the same paragraph tonight with the three of you. And, uh, and now we all look back at the time this is being played and I hope that I get one of those baseball bats. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, you'll get one. You'll yes, get one. Because uh, I think one of the few contributions I can make to the Pirates is that, unlike them, uh, I can lay down a bunt. <laughs> <laughs> they can do everything else, but I can still, from high school, like as you can, I can still lay down a bunt.
2: So, Doc, I, there's a 900 things I want to talk to you about, but... I have settled on two or three topics. And one is how you got here. It's, pre- it's a pretty amazing story because you went to college, and I doubt sincerely when you went to college at Manchester College, I believe in Indiana, right? And then you went to Miami of Ohio after that, and finally to Bowling Green, And when you got out, if
4: I'm not mistaken, you became a teacher. Is that right? Yeah. Between Miami and Bowling Green, I had to get work, and I kept doing these uh, play-by-play tapes at the Coliseum in Fort Wayne, sitting in an empty section on Wednesday nights when they didn't sell out. The Fort Wayne Comets? Yeah, the Comets with a K. And uh, on Wednesdays, they didn't sell out, so there'd be empty sections you could sneak off into. And, uh, and record a game. And, and then I would send these out to the New Haven Nighthawks and the Springfield Indians and trying to get a job. And I would get the snail mail rejection letters back that I saved, had famous signatures on them. Uh, and Who rejected you? Give me a, oh, give me a any, name or two. Anybody, um, um, the, the guys that ran the California Golden Seals at the time was um, Frank Selke, Jr., Okay, and and so I, I sent to everybody. I was a finalist in Pittsburgh with the Penguins in 1974. I was one of three finalists. They did hire the right guy, and he's still there. To this Mike day. Lang. They hired Mike Lang. <laughs> I was one of the other two guys. Wow. But they made they made the right decision. But um, anyway, during that period of time in the late 60s, uh, I was I was didn't get a job, so I had to get a job somewhere. So in Western Pennsylvania, there was an opening at a small college, very similar to Manchester, and uh, they needed somebody to teach public speaking and also administer the campus radio station, so I took the job at Geneva, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, where Joe Willie Namath had, uh, had vacated about a year earlier and won a big Super Bowl. Occasionally, he came back to see his mom, and that was a major event in Beaver Falls. So after teaching one year, I still had another year there, uh, I went to the editor of the evening newspaper in Beaver.
2: Beaver County Times?
4: It was. How did you know that? Oh, I know Beaver County Times. Okay. And I said, I'll cover the Penguins for free if you give me a pass. And he said, sounds like a good deal to me. So for the 70-71 season, I not only taught school, but anything to get my foot in the door of hockey— um red kelly was the coach of the team and i covered the penguins for one year for free and i realized after that all home games you didn't go on the road didn't go on the road right uh but i was a member of the hockey writers association of the nhl for one year were still, you
2: mike emmerich or doc emmerich that was mike, no, mike.
4: i hadn't had the doctorate <laughs> yet but anyway after one year i realized of doing that i still wanted to get my feet wet in hockey. I wanted them the worst way to be a hockey announcer. But if I had to be a college teacher the rest of my life, I could make $600 a year more if I had a doctorate. So I applied to two schools, Michigan and Bowling Green, that had not only doctoral programs in radio, TV, and film, but also had campus stations that broadcast the hockey games of the university team. And at Bowling Green, I visited there, and the man who operated the campus station, which still operates to this day, uh, said, the guy that did the second periods, I do the first and third, I'm a staff member. We let a student do the second period, he graduated. You come here on a doctoral program, you got the second period. So... I went to Bowling Green, did the coursework for two years, wrote my doctoral dissertation with the great help of Ernie Harwell. Wow. It was on Major League Baseball, played by play announcers. Nothing had ever been done on the subject before. No academic study. He was my non-academic advisor. My life lessons were largely from my parents. And from Ernie Harwell. That's amazing. And, uh, and so I got the doctoral dissertation finished after I was three years What's in. the one
2: piece of advice that Ernie Harwell gave you that sticks with you to this ride day? Ride
4: with the tide. He said, quote, I've worked for the sponsor, I've worked for the team, and I've also worked for the radio station. If you ride with the tide, you'll have a long, long career. If you decide you want to be a campaigner, Sometimes you're going to run into a wall. But the phrase, ride with the tide, is something that I've always remembered. And even though we all. Does get, he
2: mean tell the story that you see?
4: Yes, but he also meant you're going to have, and he at that time was going through a turbulent era there because Jim Campbell was the general manager, Billy Martin was the field. Manager. Wow so he said it would be very easy in this turbulent era to take sides but it's better to tell the story and ride with the tide if you want to have a long career you can have a very self-satisfying career if you're the campaigner but if you want a long career for example not moving around a lot this was probably the that was advice that he gave me that I followed. It didn't mean that I didn't get fired. Ernie got fired once himself. Uh, I was fired in Philadelphia.
2: How did you get fired?
4: um, It was the end of my contract, and I didn't know I wasn't being rehired. What year? 1993. Okay. Yeah, five-year contract was up, and um, my agent was told that he would be receiving numbers from the flyers for an extension, and time passed. And he would call and was just promised, you know, he would hear again. And time passed. And so finally he said, Look, Michael just worked for what he's been getting. And it was at that time he was informed look, we're not going to make an offer. So that was a surprise. But as fate or providence or something would have it, um, Sports Channel New York came through with an offer to do New Jersey Devils games. And so I was out of work for about two months. But in the fall of 93, here came this, and along came 18 consecutive years of doing the New Jersey Devils. And in that fall of 93, Jacques Lemaire arrived to coach. Larry Robinson arrived to be an assistant coach. A kid named Brodura arrived to be a goaltender, <laughs> and he shared the load with Chris Terreri for a while. Uh, But then a lot of really good things happened. So one door closed and another door opened and three Stanley Cup rings followed. My nephew has one, my brother has one and I have one. Wow! So it was very fortunate for me. It's interesting. I could talk to you about the
2: Devils all day because I lived in Montclair, New Jersey. We raised our family there and the Devils became our team. I took my daughters to 10 games a year at the old barn, you know, at the Meadowlands. I loved it. And there was something little engine that could-ish about that franchise, about Lou Lamarillo, about the people, uh, you know, uh, the Niedermeier's lived about three blocks away. The, I mean, it just, it was the first time that New Jersey could really call a team a home team.
4: Re- and that's why I loved it. Excuse me, I, I remember, john mcmullen getting in touch with me after the team moved there in 1982 and uh, i did three years of broadcast um following the devils with madison square Garden network in the early 80s just after john had gotten the team and he drove me up to his golf club once and he was talking all the way up about the harassment that he was getting because he chose to name the team the devils he said People think I'm satanic, (laughs) I'm a Navy guy. It's about the Pine Barons. People don't understand. It's about the Pine Barons. It's that devil. It's not Satan. It's that devil, and they chose the green and the red colors because it was the Pine Barons, and it, and he was agonizing about that because <laughs> he didn't want to be misunderstood. And I'll never forget when um, the year 2000, when they came from three-one down and they beat the Flyers in the conference final, and then they defeated Dallas. That was the end of his ownership. He had been determined he was going to sell them to Yankee Nets. And he told the players after they'd won, he said, Boys, this is my last hurrah. You guys design the rings. I'll pay for them. Wow. And they rubbed their hands together, and those babies were made out of platinum. Oh, wow. That's amazing. (laughs) But I'll never forget, too. One other thing about John, because he was a Montclair guy and a Navy guy. There was no guarantee with some of those longtime employees, and I was not one because I I worked for Madison Square Garden. I wasn't a club employee. There was no guarantee that any of them would be maintained once the ownership transferred. So that Christmas before the spring, when the team would be transferred to Yankees Nets, he and his Labrador retriever walked around the offices at the Meadowlands from one office to the other, Delivering um, a Christmas card with a check enclosed with a large bonus for every year of service that that person had given wow. to his ownership. Um, so it may, have been, it may have been a Christmas gift, but it may have also been protection, not being able to guarantee what would happen. After there was a change in ownership. Always admired John. Even though I never worked for him, I always admired the way he ran his business and the way his family did. Uh, With Doc Emmerich. Doc, um, I bet
2: zero people who will listen to this podcast will know about the seminal event you covered in the life of Brett Lorenzo Favre. (laughs) And... How I doubt many people will have any idea that you worked for CBS and you did football games and you also did the first throw of Brett Favre's life. You've got to tell me the story.
4: Well, Tim Ryan was doing – he was going to be this new guy's partner. Matt Millen had just finished his three Super Bowl career with three different teams, and he just retired. And because Matt was such a good conversationalist when he was a player, CBS wisely thought, this guy'd be great in the booth. So they hired him for that. This is the first fall after his retirement. And, but Tim Ryan can't be his partner for two weeks because Tim's doing the tennis, the big tournament. US Open, yeah. Yeah, of course. So they needed somebody To work with Matt for two weeks. So um, uh, I was the guy. And I had uh, done my last uh, football game at Manchester 25 years (laughs) before. (laughs) Manchester College. Hail to thee. Hail to the black and gold. Hail to victory. Fight for your colors. Fight for honor, too. Hail to Manchester. Hail to you. So anyway, (laughs) it's my first game. It's Matt's first game. It's Green Bay hosting Minnesota. It's Dennis Green's first game as coach of the Vikings. Wow. It's Mike Holmgren's first game as coach of the Packers. And Matt and Mike, of course, know one another from Mike's days with the 49ers. And so anyway, we have this this uh, thing where Friday you see the home team, Saturday you see the visitors, Sunday you do the game. So anyway, Matt and I have this conversation with Holmgren after we've talked with the players and we've talked with Mikowski, the starting quarterback for the Packers, and and we're about to leave and Holmgren says, have you talked to our quarterback? I said, yeah, we just spoke with Mikowski downstairs. No, the other guy. No, we talked with Mikowski. He said, let me tell you about this guy. So he goes into this story about this guy lives on a small uh, plantation sort of farm down in in this little town in Mississippi and his dad lives in the same place and his dad's his high school coach and he said let me tell you about this guy he got in a little bit of trouble this summer but uh, I called down there and his dad answered the phone and I said "Uh, look uh, Coach Favre this is Coach Holmgren in Green Bay I want to talk to your son and he said well look We got that worked out with the sheriff. Everything's fine. He said, I want to talk to your son. Well, he's not here right now. Would you have him call me? So about a half hour later, the call was placed. And he said, look, if you want to be running around getting in trouble and things like that, look, I understand. But this is Green Bay, Wisconsin. We really think you can help us. But, gonna have to make a choice here. If you wanna make the choice to go a little straighter and a little narrower, we're with you. If not, maybe where you came from in Atlanta is a good place. Right. You decide. I guess he did. So, to finish the story, doesn't play that game. Flaude Revez kicks into a field goal in overtime, Minnesota wins. One more game. Green Bay down in Tampa Bay the following week. Matt and I are assigned to do it. Second quarter, Mikowski out. Favre comes in, drops back to pass, on rushing lineman, passes. Deflects the pass, yeah. Favre catches it, loss. Trivia question, who caught Brett Favre's first packer pass? Brett Favre. That's pretty good. Are you running out of tape? And (laughs) who broadcast
2: Brett Favre's first completed pass (laughs) in NFL history? And Doc, (laughs) yeah, that's outstanding.
4: So it's kind of a long story, and and uh, you know, I wonder if Favre knows that. Uh, He may not. Yeah. And uh, and and of course, you know, it it may have been colored over time, but that was that was the story that uh, that Mike mentioned to us that day that that there was. Something that he wanted to at least have squared away before yeah. his career. And and the proof is in how legendary that career became and how much fun it was for me to watch that career after I saw the first play he ever made. It became <laughs> fun is. for me to see a guy go into the Hall of Fame that was like that.
2: That is outstanding. Um, with Doc Edmer- Emmerich, a couple more things. You know, when I listen to you do a hockey game, the word that sticks to my head is mellifluous okay you you do a game like it's a paragraph in a novel you know from one stoppage of play to the next it's very well written it's together and I think one of the reasons is because when you do a game you tell people even if you have done a Sidney Crosby game 600 times in your life, and I'm probably exaggerating, if you've done a Sidney Crosby game 600 times, you were going to tell people Sidney Crosby is from where Halifax or wherever. Where is he from? Um, Coal Harbor, Nova Scotia. Okay, yeah. yeah. He's from Nova Scotia. Here's what life is like there. You always know a little something about every player. And I want to ask you, how much studying do you do – of a, of an entire team's roster. Let's say the St. Louis Blues and the Boston Bruins in the Stanley Cup this year. I'm sure you didn't do many St. Louis Blues games during the year. So how do you learn that roster?
4: Uh, the night before, usually you go over biographical things like you just mentioned about Crosby. You look over those things the night before because you have the luxury of doing it. The morning of the game, um, home team is at 10.30, visitors, 11.30. You get a few players, you get the coaches. You pay $200 million a year for rights, you get a few things. So you do get the coaches by yourself. Uh, in the afternoon, you pull that stuff together. But the night before is when you go over biographical things, like, like what you said about Crosby. And with St. Louis, because I'd only seen him a couple of times in the regular season, uh, it's a little more. With Boston, because I'd been through three rounds with them. Already, it's a little less. But you also realize, and this is reemphasized to us by Sam Flood, our executive producer, whenever we have a final series, a seventh game of any round, a winter classic, or an Olympics, you are getting far more people that have not followed that series before or may not have followed hockey all year that are jumping in. For the seventh game in the final, we had 10 million people that Great audience. Yes, it was enormous. Ooh. It was the biggest. Uh, and that's five times what you would have for a seventh game of a playoff series. So it was enormous, and you don't want to lose those people. So we talked about how Boston had a record number of Americans on their roster. That interests people from the United States, gee, they're lo- I thought all the hockey players were Canadian. Yeah. No, less than half are now. The rest come from the United States and Europe. So there are, there are things that you like to get in early just so that it reacquaints people that may not have watched a game since the Olympics with facts like that.
2: Does your love of hockey, you know, I was telling somebody this recently that when I listen to Bob Costas, I, f- I hear a guy who really loves baseball. When I listen to Doc Emmerich, I hear a guy who you your love of hockey really shines through in every telecast. And I want to know what your goal is when you do a game. Are you trying to be a mirror of what you see, or are you trying to add something about your love of the game that you hope will shine through for others?
4: I guess the latter is true. I'd like to have more people like the sport. And so, with those times during the playoffs, when we have more viewers, I hope that there'll be something that will entice someone to stay with us next year and watch games in October. So that's of interest to me. But the sport is just so great that um, Brian Williams asked me to do a, an under 12 girls game in Troy, Michigan during the lockout the last time. It was one of the best nights I ever spent watching a hockey game and, and broadcasting it. It was edited and edited down to about eight minutes but i got to go in the dressing room and talk to a young woman that that had an ambition of being a veterinarian i said what do you have she had a a dog two cats and hermit crabs i said (laughs) what do they eat she said rolled up bits of lettuce somehow or other it made it onto the broadcast (laughs) and the other thing i noticed was that the ponytails covered the numbers I hadn't thought about that going in. It made it hard to identify some of them. <laughs> but but it's, it's a glorious sport. They were just playing it for an activity that they could look back on sometime when they were veterinarians or concert violinists. But it's a wonderful sport. Unnatural extensions of your feet. You have to learn to use those to get there to play the sport. Unnatural extensions of your arm. You have a stick in your hand. You have to learn that before you can even think about going up and down the ice and scoring a goal. So it's not like running. You have to have those things intact first. I probably yes. should go. I'm gonna we can en- continue. Uh, no, I'm
2: going to end this right now, but, okay. but ho- just hold on one second. Doc Emmerich, it's been great to speak to you, great uh, uh, to get to know you a bit, and I really appreciate it and I have great admiration for your work.
4: Thank you so much. And probably the story needs to be cleared with Mike Holmgren. <laughs> <laughs>
2: My thanks to Ed Werder and Doc Emmerich. Some memorable stuff from both guys. You know, I want to give a very quick plug to something coming up later this month. In August, I went to Kansas City and I sat down with Brett Favre, Patrick Mahomes, who is the the quarterback most like Brett Favre since Brett Favre, and the man who's coached them both, Andy Reid. And we did something really, really cool. We... Uh, analyzed and really dug into five plays on film of each quarterback. Andy Reid got into uh, discussing and and dissecting the plays. Favre did and Mahomes did. Some really cool moments. It's a great half-hour show, if I do say so myself. You're really going to like this. And it's going to be on Wednesday, October 30, on NBC Sports Network, after the hockey doubleheader. And that's it for this week. Be sure to join me next week. We're going to have a fun show that's going to have some highlights from that particular program and also a new book about the Pittsburgh Steelers from the son of Dan Rooney with some great stories in there about what it was like to grow up Rooney. Thanks a lot for joining me this week. Look forward to seeing you next week.